Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Krista Ungerbach is a leadership language expert and former CEO of a global tech company. His work has appeared in NPR, Forbes, HR.com, Chief Executive, and Entrepreneur. Prior to exiting corporate life, Krista was CEO of one of the largest family-owned software companies in the world. While leading the company to over 100 million in shareholder value, his team won five consecutive top workplace awards, achieved remarkable employee engagement levels of 99.3%. And I have a good colleague who does employee engagement work, and I think he would agree that that is unheralded in respect to employee engagement. And they became a dominant player in its market niche. Krister is also the author of the groundbreaking book, 22 Talk Shifts, Tools to Transform Leadership in Business, partnership in life, which also led him to become a number one Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Welcome, Krista. We are so glad to have you. And I'm curious in your, uh, yeah, I did a light introduction of you, and I certainly would love to hear a little bit more about what you have done in the past and kind of how you actively integrate with the market today. Yeah. So, well, when I left my role as CEO, the software company, which we'll probably talk a little bit because that gets to my bravery story. Uh, I I really wanted to have a broader impact on the world and use business as a tool and specifically communication, leadership communication and business as a tool to uh, not only improve employee engagement and relationships in a work setting, uh, but also to give people tools that they can take home to practice to be uh, to improve their relationship with their children and their spouse or their their families. Um, ultimately, uh, my, my, maybe as a former CEO, if somebody said, hey, here's a book about how to improve communication with your kids or your, your spouse, I, that's probably not something I would pick up. But I would certainly pick up a book about how to become a better leader and uh, grow my business more quickly. And so a lot of what we do is really give people tools to do those things and be more successful in their career and at work. But then we also kind of weave in examples of how you can use the exact same communication tools with your children. And it seems to be working because uh, ironically, well, maybe not ironically, this is kind of our intention is that the uh, business people who read the book are most often when they say the kind of the greatest impact that they're finding or the surprising impact in addition to work is how they talk with their 
uh, with their family members. And, and so that was ultimately our objective. Well, it's fascinating when we talk about language, as I can recall during my time in corporate America, we actually had hired a consultant who attempted to identify the words or phrases we used as a company most often. Uh, lots of companies have their own kind of internal language and, att and attempted to create consistency among the language so that we could motivate and be energized a little bit more. And, you know, I'm not suggesting you use that as an example, but, you know, when you're talking about language, tell us a little bit more. And I think our listeners would love to hear a little bit more. You know, what is it that you work on and what is the impact it can have on the workplace? So a lot of, you know, I was a very kind of uh, hard driving leader. Uh, never, I never really yelled at people, but I was, I was pretty demanding. And ultimately, uh, if I could go back and have a do-over, I would have, if I'd known these tools back then, I think I would have been able to blend uh, the ability of holding people accountable and kind of being a driver and kind of getting things done with allowing people to feel more um, emotionally connected to the objectives. And ultimately what ultimately the outcome of practicing the 22 talk shifts is really just deeper engagement, deeper commitment and deeper connection. And, and those are things that we don't just want from our employees and from our team members. We also want that from our children, you know, whether it's like cleaning their room or, you know, working with us or something, you know, we want, we want people who are more committed to the actions that we would hope that they take. And that that's really the ultimate uh, thing. So, that's that's really what it's all about. And I think that language is one of the things that's really unique about my background is I opened businesses in Europe, uh, in France and Germany after September 11th. And I lived in France and Germany uh, and traveled throughout the basically throughout Europe, throughout the world um, from 2001 to 2007. And I had the opportunity to learn French and German as an adult. And I some of the insights, not all of them, actually are drawn from observations of differences between how people speak in different languages and then applying those learnings back to uh, the English language. Well, when you talk about the differences and if we look at the English language, I think what I'm hearing you suggest that, you know, how we speak or the words that we use can be influential in achieving a particular outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of what I, you know, I'm, I was an engineer by training, so I always wanted emotional intelligence is a good example. I probably read five, maybe 10 books on emotional intelligence. And ultimately, I don't think I was really that much more emotionally intelligent after reading those books. So we have a two or three chapters in the book, for example, that breaks emotional intelligence down to very specific words and changes that we can make to our words. Um, and, and, and that really is, I think, that why people are latching onto the book is these are 22 simple tools that's like you can say you probably say it some way like this. Now, here's just an alternative way to say it that will have a different outcome. And so you could get four chapters into the book and you'll already have two, you know, three or four tips of different ways that you can communicate that you can literally put in practice the moment you set down the book. And, and that was really, as an engineer, uh, that was really what I wanted to give people is the tools that I wish I had had uh, back when I was CEO. Could you give us an example, Krista, of a word or a phrase that helps you uh, make progress or get alignment with others? So one that I typically, actually, I'm not going to talk about one that I typically talk about. Well, probably one of the simplest ones is um, if I say, uh, you need to do this. You need to show up earlier. You need to get your work in on time. You need to do this. 
these are what we call modal verbs. And I don't want to get into a grammar lesson. Um, but in other languages, I actually had a story where I went to one of our first customers in France and I was still very early in learning French. And I thought, ah, oh, well, they're in Cannes. They're the Cannes Film Festival, the Palais de Festival de Cannes. And I thought, well, I'll go down there and I'll do the training session because it'll force me to practice my French. And for three days, I thought, I thought I did a good job. You know, I stumbled a lot and it was certainly, I was probably only speaking at like a fourth or fifth grade level, but I thought, you know, we kind of, we, we, we got through it. And at that time we really didn't have any available French speaking people. So they're like, well, we can either get started today with Christopher or we wait like three months for the you know fluent French speaker. And the, the CFO called the salesperson on who reported to me, who was in charge of the French region and said, don't ever send Christopher back here ever again. So I went to my French teacher who happened to be in Belgium and he said, Christopher, what did you say to the people in Cannes? And I told him in French and he goes, here, let me translate what you just said. You must do this. You need to do this. You should do this. It's And so I didn't realize that I was using these subtle nuances and we do this in English all the time. You know, every time you hear the word should or you need to, um, these are, there are subtle changes you can make to that. So you need to show up at work on time. An alternative is show up at work on time. Like uh, that's a little a bit of a commanding way to do it. But I can say, please show up uh, on time or get your work in on time. Or I could say, hey, would you consider, um, you know, turning that project in early? And so these are all different ways that are much, uh, much more likely to get commitment from people. Because I, I used to, as a boss, I would say things like, oh, you should do this. You should do that. And what I found is it really, for the most part, just shuts people down. Uh, and, and you never get an agreement from them that they're actually going to change their behavior. So what we often find ourselves as leaders is kind of like a broken record, whether it's with our children or whether it's with our coworkers, is we keep saying the same things over and over again and people don't change their behavior. Well, let's start changing our words if we want different behavior. And so we talk about, you know, if you, if you want to change your relationships and your outcomes, often it is as simple as changing your words. Well, the reason I'm asking about this topic, Krister, is that uh, based on information that we have received during the tenure of this podcast, practice is a great way to increase the likelihood that you're going to be braver in the workplace. And the words you use in order to gain engagement and to ensure the other person's listening and actively participating, if I am coming to you to tell you something that's difficult for you to hear, the words I use, right, are critically important. And so it's important to practice with somebody else. And, you know, I would tell you just, you know, I'd say candidly, but here we are in a public uh, podcast, you know, that the words like you should or need, you know, sound a little patronizing, like you should have known this and you didn't. So shame on you and, you know, slap on the wrist and get better at it. And I agree with you that how we say what we need to say and the words that we use, uh, I don't want to say need or should, but the likelihood of effectiveness is going to be greater if you practice it so that you can have someone say, hey, you know, I hear what you're saying, but if I were the person receiving what you just said, it feels like you're telling me something I should have known and didn't. And, you know, maybe I didn't know that. So maybe there's another word you can use or another way to phrase it. And by practicing and getting that type of feedback in advance, the likelihood of a greater outcome is increased. I think actually most of the tools in the book are actually our tools to be braver at work. You know, the first thing that I would suggest that I do suggest when people read the book is to invite someone in because our language is very unconscious. 
I remember when I was learning French and German, I had, uh, it was an, she was, she was my assistant, but she was also kind of our marketing person. And she had been, um, in her twenties, she had been a, an English teacher or a French teacher or German teacher. She's probably French or German because those were her native languages. And she was very good about almost like a child. Here I am. I was a 30, almost 40 year old, uh, you know, executive. But when I would try to speak in French or German to her, she was very good about just nudging and saying, Hey, and like correcting the same way you would actually, um, see a parent correcting a child who's using the wrong grammar. And so what I find is that because our language is so unconscious, it's very important to invite someone to say, hey, I'm reading this book. And uh, one of the things I'm practicing, for example, chapter three is this don't use should and need to. If another person reads the book with you and you say, I'd like to really practice number three, could you just help me to be more aware of when I do it? And and that's one that's a kind of a light way to be um, more brave uh, at work. But yeah, it's really when you when you see and read some of these tips, you start to observe what what I found most frequently is people say, I find myself thinking about my words in ways that I never did before I read this book. Um, And there was one person who said he, he actually compared it to the Bible. He was a very Christian person and he compared it because he said the only other book that I think about on a daily basis is the Bible. But this is, uh, this, it, it really helps us to actually observe other people's words. And we're, oh, wow, oh, oh, Ed, Ed said should, Ed said need to. Or, and so all of these 22 tips are very practical like that. Well, we are f- uh, huge fans of accountability partners, which are people who can, especially short term, remind you or be very present with you in respect to a behavior you're attempting to modify. So if you're at a meeting, and you're attempting to say should or need less, and somebody else is listening, and after the meeting, in one minute or two minutes, it's not a long conversation, saying, Ed, I just wanted to give you feedback. You're making fantastic progress. I did not hear should or need at all, and keep it going, right? I I will feel that, right, because it just happened, as opposed to two months later, somebody saying, hey, you're making great progress. So practicing, I think the words that you want to use and recognizing the words you want to use are incredibly important. And then finding an accountability partner who can help you, you know, I think is significantly important as well. The most common one, you know, I think of when I think of word modification, and I'm sure you've heard this all the time, is people told uh, not to use the word but to use the word yet or and. And it's the old, uh, you know, stand up comedian group thing that you always build upon whatever the last person said that anytime you say, but you're essentially saying everything you just heard is incorrect. Here's what you should be thinking about. Right. So I'm sure you have experienced or talked about that with people. That was actually one we did not include the book because we wanted to do well, everybody include, include about things it, so. that people did not hear. Uh, there was actually I was actually just reading the Amazon reviews last night because uh, we wanted to decide which ones to put on the website. And that was one of the things that stuck out for me is that one of the people said, I learned a number of things that I've never heard before. And that was really ultimately why write a book if it's just saying the same things that everybody already knows. Uh, not, not that I mean, there are some things certainly in the book that um, uh a, a percentage of the readers have heard about. I think that the other thing when we're talking about being brave at work is so one is to say, Hey, I'm working on talk shift number three and 12 and whatever. 
the more brave way is to ask someone else who's read the book, whether it's your spouse or your boss or that coworker who you have a, you know, some frustrating conversations with, ask them, what are the three shifts that you would like me to, to work on? Uh, and that's really why we, when we wrote the book, we really wanted to be a framework where uh, whether it's uh, two coworkers or people in a family could both read the book or we have a video book that people can actually watch together on their own, on a smart TV. And it's uh, called Talk Shift TV. But the, the, you can watch it. And then after you can say, well, what are the three that you'd like me to practice with you? And then what we find is that if a husband and wife or two coworkers, rarely do they necessarily come to the same conclusions of what they would have wanted to practice. <laughs> the other person often suggests should suggest different ones, different talk shifts. So that, that I think is really the power of the book and, you know, why people are, why it's resonating so much with people. Well, it sounds like uh, a couple of lessons for our listeners is to first understand the importance of the words you use, that the words you use are very important in helping to convey exactly what it is that you want to share with someone. And then this idea of practice or an accountability partner to help ensure that you're doing what you thought you would do. Because sometimes we are our own worst moderators, right? We think we did it or we thought we did it, but we can't remember. So it's a great way to do that. You mentioned earlier, Krister, that you had a story about bravery. And I'm wondering if you'd like to share that with our listeners. Well, certainly the you, you tell me if you want. I, the two that had come to mind is probably the most brave was when I actually left my role as CEO. Uh, but I, I, I talk about that on a lot of different podcasts. The one that occurred to me when you asked, when you suggested that was there was actually an employee I had in Germany. And uh, in Germany, it's very, very difficult to fire people. Uh, and this person was a top salesperson, our top salesperson in, in, in Europe. And, and we only had two salespeople. So as a business owner, like to let go of your top salesperson um, is kind of a scary thing to do. And, and then add to the fact that uh, in Germany, because of the circumstances, it was probably about a half million dollars we had to pay the guy to walk out the door, which in the United States, you don't have that. And so this individual is really so toxic. And ultimately, it came down to the, it sent such a strong message to our employees to say, because they were in Germany, they knew that we were, they've heard the stories of what it costs to get rid of an employee in Germany. And while they didn't know the exact numbers, they certainly knew it was probably in the multiple six figures uh, that we had to pay to, to get this guy off the payroll. And, and for me, I see that as an investment in our culture. Like it's really taking a, sending a strong message to our employees to say, we will not tolerate that behavior any longer. And while the probably the overall cost to that decision over a course of three to five years may have been three to probably three million dollars. And so if you're a leader now, obviously I was CEO, but three million dollars was still a pretty significant sum to the size business we were at that time. And it's really how much are you willing to invest in the you know culture and the employee satisfaction when you have one of those individuals that's just they will not modify their behavior. They're speaking down to people. They're you know or I mean there were people who would come into my office in tears because this individual would just because of the way this individual would speak to them. And I, admittedly, I probably let it go on for years longer than um, than 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 was was necessarily helpful. 
I actually said then I should have. So some of these things with these talk shifts is very important is it's, they're not just how we speak to others. They're also how we speak to ourselves. And so, you know, the fact that I've been writing about this for years, uh, this specific talk shift, I, I raise it because it is extremely difficult habit to break, um, in the English, at least, uh, other languages, not so much because that kind of form of, um, speaking is kind of, for whatever reason, it's just not as popular in the, uh, in the, the dialect. So in any case, um, I would say that that was really probably, that was one of my most brave moments as a leader. Um, I imagine not as many people are CEOs. So hearing a story about why I left as CEO is probably not as uh, interesting. <laughs> well, certainly working with a toxic employee is probably way more common. And uh, I agree with you that, you know, all it takes is one bad apple to have a huge impact to an organization, especially if their performance is stellar but their behavior is not, right? This is a classic business model where, you know, how do I manage, especially a salesperson or a business development person who has fantastic numbers and is helping the organization generate revenue, yet their behavior is reprehensible, right? And, and that's my word, not yours, but, you know, whose behavior is problematic. Yeah. Well, I think there's another, the other thing that is, and I believe that the book gives some specific tools for people of how to do this, Probably the next way to be, probably even the mo more common way to be brave at work is when we do have a problem with someone, especially if that's someone like our boss. Um, but I think the same thing happens in uh, at home as well, uh, is to actually have the courage to have a real conversation rather than just complaining and, and kind of letting resentment build or complaining to our coworkers, complaining to our friends, complaining to family about individuals that frustrate us having the tools to have a conversation and have a conversation that has a more likely to have a positive outcome. And so that is too often we kind of just, Oh, that person will never change. And uh, like, so we just allow ourselves the, just let the resentment build. And ultimately we're an accomplice in the crime. If we never tell the person about the behavior. And I, I think one of the things that, in this, the, the latest edition of the book, we're kind of working on a second edition. Um, a lot of readers who we, we had two, two groups of readers, people who bought it primarily to improve a personal relationship and people who bought it to improve, you know, their career and uh, communication at work. And because it's primarily a leadership and business book, a lot of the people who are looking for the relationship anger, like, wait, I don't understand the connection. Like how, how is having a conversation with my boss uh, the same as having a conversation with my spouse? And so we added a new preface called leadership and relationship that drew the difference, like the, 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 the ultimate thing about these conversations and why we don't have them is fear. So I'm afraid that my boss is going to fire me, right? If I say the wrong thing. Uh, but what we, many people don't see is this same power dynamic plays also in kind of a marriage, for example. Like if I'm the, if I'm the primary uh, income earner in my family, uh, or even if we have a dual wage uh, family, the reality is, is if one person is unhappy in that relationship, there's a significant financial penalty. I mean, it's not too dissimilar. In fact, I would say like, you know, potentially ending a relationship where two people have, uh, you know, equivalent incomes, that's actually probably scarier than leaving a job and getting fired because I can always get a new job making the same amount of money 
But if, you know, I'm just going to use round numbers. If I make 75,000 and my spouse makes 75,000, I'm probably not going to find a new lifestyle at 150,000 in combined income if that relationship ends. And so what happens is um, this kind of financial interdependence uh, among families. And then there's a last thing is this function of power. There's also emotional power in relationships, right? I'm looking for someone to you know, approve, they like me, they give me positive encouragement versus criticism. And sometimes people who maybe don't have the financial power don't realize that they have a lot of emotional power over the individuals. And at least the therapists, the marriage counselors will say that most frequently, the one who has the most emotional power in a relationship is often the the woman. Um, when, you know, a man, for example, tends to really want the kind of, you know, the emotional validation from our spouses. Uh, and again, I'm just talking about the research here. So uh, the same thing happens between employees and bosses, right? If my boss is constantly critical versus encouraging me to get, you know, to do, you know, new and better and bigger things, then we also get a lot of emotional validation from our mentors and bosses in, in the workplace. So this is really the common thread throughout the book is when you peel back the layer, a couple layers, you actually see that the dynamics between a boss and a uh, and, and an employee of fear also happen between parents and children, um, a, children even in their aging parents, like my father's in the 70s, and some of these dynamics still play out, uh, and of course, within, uh, within relationships. Well, uh, it sounds as though we could have a whole other podcast just talking about many of the uh, behaviors and experiences that are included in your book. So I would encourage all of our listeners to get to Amazon and purchase 22 Talk Shifts, Tools to Transform Leadership in Business and Partnership in Life, which again is a Wall Street bestselling uh, book. And Krista, we want to thank you so much for your observations and thoughts today regarding bravery at work. What is a way that people can contact you if they'd like to talk to you more about this topic? So the best way, if it's speaking to groups, I do at Krister.com. So Krister is my first name, Krister with a K.com. And then I also have an I have special offers where you can get the book at a, a discount off of the Amazon price at TalkShift.com. Fantastic. Well, I hope many of our listeners purchased a book and learned the importance really of language as it relates specifically to helping you be braver at work. So, Krista, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. And we hope you join us next week as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and our download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Capit Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at capitrisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio everywhere online. You have something to say, yet are not saying it. You have something to do, yet are not doing it. Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.